We're walking through 2 Corinthians. We've got two more after this week, which we'll pick up in early December, but uh, 2 Corinthians, we're up to chapter 12. We've entitled it Thorny Grace. Uh, Not amazing grace, (laughs) but thorny grace, which turns out to be amazing in the end in terms of what it does in our lives. I want to talk about thorny grace. And I don't want to in any way trivialize, but hopefully by God's word put into perspective uh, some things in your life that you've just not understood and that are downright painful. We, We have blessing in our lives, but we also have brokenness and we need to be very honest about both of those things and even how they relate. And this is where Paul's going to go in chapter 12. So um, what will come to amazing grace starts with thorny grace. And Paul in the last three chapters in 2 Corinthians is preparing for a trip back to Corinth. But he's, he's got a growing body of critics in the church, even though he started the church. And, and, and it's, kind of, it's kind of getting around. You know, Paul is really forceful and eloquent when he writes letters. But when he's with us, he doesn't seem that impressive. In fact, they were talking about all the other preachers they like better than Paul. So Paul feels like he's just, you know, and he keeps kind of apologizing. Like, I don't mean to be boasting, but in the last three chapters, he's trying to retrieve his credibility among them as as a person of spiritual authority and leadership as an apostle. So verse 1, right out of the chute in chapter 12, I must go on boasting, he said. I must go on boasting. And then in typical fashion, like he does in the previous chapter, he kind of apologizes. Although there's nothing, I'm awkward about this, there's nothing really to be gained. But I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. And and part of what the Corinthians loved were these especially electrifying spiritual experiences. And so Paul's going to fight fire with fire here. Okay, you like all these other preachers better than me and everything? Uh, and, And you don't think I have much to say to you anymore? by the Lord's authority. Well, okay, let's talk about spiritual experiences then. I bet I've had one that none of them have had. So he said, I know, verse 2, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether it was out of the body, in the body, or out of the body, I I do not know. God knows. But verse 3, but I know that this man was caught up to paradise and heard inexpressible things that no one is permitted to tell. Now, he, he, he switches to third person, I know a man. He's really talking about himself because he is kind of embarrassed. This does sound like boasting to him. He said, I know a man, turns out him, who went to the third heaven. We're not sure what the Corinthians would have understood by third heaven, except that often the Jews consider like the atmosphere, the lowest heaven, and then the starry sky, the second heaven, and heaven itself, or what he calls paradise, the third heaven. All we know, he went to the highest heaven. God took him. He said, I don't know if it was in my body or I was out of my body, but God took me to heaven. And he said, there are no earthly paradigms, there's no earthly language to describe what I saw there. I I could not begin to tell you what I experienced In his first letter to the Corinthians, he said, eye has not seen nor ear heard what God has prepared for those who love him. I want to tell you, there's no earthly category to describe what eternity in his presence is going to be like. And and Paul said, God gave me a glimpse of it, and I can't even describe. In fact, some things I'm not even supposed to say. But he said in verse 7, 
in order to keep me from being conceited. Because I had a spiritual experience that probably trumps everybody else's spiritual experience. And it, it was important to the Lord that I not go the wrong direction in my head with this. That I start thinking myself somehow better than everybody else because I had this. So he's right up front and he's very honest with us. He said, it was to keep me from being conceited. I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Now, he wasn't just talking about little annoying pricklies. Thorn, in the Greek, it would refer to something long and sharp that goes deep into your flesh. And he says it's right from Satan himself. But God permitted it, because Satan can't go past what God permits. God permitted it in my life, something deeply penetrating and deeply painful. God gave me a thorn in the flesh. And just to save us a lot of time, let me just say up front, there is no way that you can say definitively what this thorn in the flesh was. He just flat out doesn't tell us. Some people think it was a physical affliction. In other, in other letters, Paul hints to having eye problems. Or because he was often criticized for his preaching, he may have had a speech impediment. Or, 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 or even, even mental turmoil. He, he may have hit, hit a wall at times too often in his life where even though God was using him powerfully inside, he was fighting these, maybe some mental torment. Or very likely, it could have been his persecutors. There were just people who were just constantly causing him problems. They were like the messengers of Satan. We don't know. But it's a blessing, actually, in disguise that we're not told. I mean, our curiosity is going crazy. We'd love to know what that thorn was. But it's a blessing we don't know because if we knew the thorn, then we'd, we'd write the story off as maybe to applying to Paul, but not to us. But because he doesn't mention the thorn, we have permission to read our own stories into this because we all have things that are pretty painful that have happened in our lives. And, and, and Paul's saying, now God has a purpose. And this purpose was to keep me humble it was to fight pride in spite of all the things that God was doing through me. I love how Chase Replogle in his soon-to-be-published book, Five Masculine Instincts, he helps me with my weekly podcast, he writes this in that book. In a world obsessed with self-esteem and self-expression, Christians embrace a unique form of self-suspicion. If you're a follower of Jesus, it's not self-esteem and self-expression, it's self-suspicion. He said, the first pain of maturity is the pain of recognizing your own inadequacy. But pride wants to take us the other direction. Pride shifts our focus from God back onto ourselves. What a horrifying way to live. I mean, everything inside of us wants to pat ourselves on the back, just say, I'm impressed. Yes, God, hallelujah. What a great Christian I am the way you've just used me. Pride wants to... And, 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 and it's me that's at the focus. It's me in the spotlight. Pride shifts our focus of God, off God and puts it back on ourselves. Pride feeds the lie that we are better than we really are. I hate to say that, but pride sel seldom tells you the truth. But it feeds you with the lie that we're better than we really are. And pride breeds this overconfidence that tempts us to trust God less. See, the more impressed you are with you, the less impressed you'll be with God. And there's something very wrong with that picture. And that's why Paul says, in order to keep me from being conceited, 
God allowed me to be stuck by the enemy with a thorn. And, and he said, in so many words, I just became desperate to get rid of this thing. I mean, it was painful. It was cramping my style. It looked like it was getting in the way of what I could do for God. And so he said, three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. And that word plead tips us off that it wasn't just a casual one-sentence prayer request on three different occasions like, oh God, would you get rid of this thorn? And then on to other things. It kind of reminds us of the three times that Jesus prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. It was probably three seasons where Paul had just had it. He just couldn't stand it anymore. And he went before God. And he, just like Jesus agonized in the Garden of Gethsemane three different times, three different times, Paul came before the Lord and he just agonized. He said, I pleaded with God, oh God, please get rid of this thing for me. Please heal me or please deliver me or please whatever I need, whatever that thorn was. He just pleaded with God that this thorn would be taken away from us, from him. And as you know, there's three different answers to prayer. There's yes, not yet, and no. And in this case, I'm sure much to Paul's chagrin, the answer was no. And until the Lord said no to Paul in this way. Verse 9. But he, the Lord, said to me. I pleaded for him to take it away. And he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. You say that out loud. My grace is sufficient for you. I'm leaving that thorn stuck way deep inside of you. But there's something greater. Now, grace, Philip Yancey called it our last and best word in the Christian life. It, it's, it's the amazing word of God acting towards us. Not us impressing God, but God acting towards us just like we are. It's what happened when Jesus died on the cross. He took our worst on himself. He took our sin on himself so that he could give us his rightness and his righteousness. Our sins could be washed away by his sacrifice and we could have resurrection life. That's the great, we call that saving grace. It's, it, it's God's favor that we don't deserve. It's unmerited favor from God. It, it, it's where we start. That's how you become a Christian. You, you humble yourself before God, say, God, I don't deserve it. I've sinned against you. And how does God respond when you come in Jesus his name. He comes with what Jesus purchased for you at the cross. Grace. He, saving grace. He brings you in the kingdom of God. But I'm going to be ready for a, for, for a praise God in just a minute. What Paul was talking about here was not just saving grace. He was talking about sustaining grace. Because the Jesus who saves us, the God who called you can keep you. The Jesus who saved you can also sustain you. And there are times when our pain there are times when we just don't know with what to do with God. May I be honest, there's times when God just sort of sticks in our throat. We don't uh, uh, get it. He's, he, he seems to have no felt need to explain himself to us. We don't know what to do with it. We plead and we pray, and it doesn't go away. And, and, what, and what do you do with it? And Jesus says, I'm about to introduce you, not just to saving grace that got you started, but to sustaining grace that's going to carry you through. Now, does this mean we don't pray for healing or deliverance when the enemy's coming at us? I love the fact that Paul's first default position was to plead that it would go away. Uh, given no other information, you're sick, 
you're being harassed by demonic power, you're discouraged, it's always right to start by praying in faith and believing God for his victory in your life. I mean, when I stand before Jesus someday, he's probably not going to say, Bradford, you did pretty good down there. The only thing I have against you is that you just trusted me for too much. I doubt he's going to judge me for having too little faith. I mean, that's the default position, right? You got a thorn in the flesh, you know, barring any other revelation from God, I'm going to pray for faith. I'm going to come up here and have a prayer worker agree with me that God's going to heal me. God's going to help me. That's always where you start. But there are times when God has higher purposes and he says, what I want is not the removal of your pain, but I want you to experience sustaining grace. And you put, you put saving grace plus sustaining grace, that equals what Jesus spoke to Paul, sufficient grace. But the Lord said to me in answer to my prayer, my grace is sufficient. That means enough. That means all you'll ever need. That means you can make it because Jesus is with you and he's going to hold you and he's going to sustain you because his grace is sufficient. Why? For my power is made perfect in weakness. And this is the key. My power is made perfect in weakness. I like my Bradford paraphrases that of that is that when we're weak, God does his best work. It's made complete. My power is perfected, made complete. I mean, I do my best work when you're least impressive. That way the spotlight's on me, God says, and not on you. So Paul said, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses. <laughs> so that, why? Christ's power may rest on me. I mean, whatever this thorn was, Paul Paul's viewed it as somehow weakening and debilitating him. But I thank God that my weakness doesn't limit our awesome God. That my weakness, my sense of I have so little to bring to the table here, my, my sense of inadequacy, overwhelmed with my limitations, however this thorn was limiting Paul, thank God our limitations don't limit the name and power of Jesus Christ. Thank God for that. And so he says, given the choice, given the choice, I'd rather be weak with Christ's power on me than be free of pain and, and, and have everything up to me. This is sufficient grace. I started to think about that, sufficient grace. What will sufficient grace do for you? What will the saving and sustaining grace of Jesus do for you? Well, first of all, it's going to change your frustrations into faith. It's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to replace frustration with faith. And I know the pain. And I don't want to be light or trivial at all. I, I know people who are going through some family problems right now. There's no human solution to it. And I don't know why God hasn't broken through yet. I know people who are dying of cancer and other things. I don't know. I don't, I don't get it. I don't know it all. But all I know is that God's sustaining grace can move us from just being frustrated over the thorns and over the things that aren't happening yet to a place of faith. And I was in Ethiopia six years ago or so, and uh, uh, kind of, I, I wasn't feeling great just before I left on the plane. This was pre-pandemic, and, and, and I ended up coming down with a cold. And by the time I landed in Ethiopia, I had laryngitis. That's frustrating. And so we land in Ethiopia, and through, for an entire moment, morning, two and a half hours, 
I spoke to a group of about 100 pastors from all over Addis Ababa in a room with no microphone. I was already hoarse, like, oh, so good to see you today. It's just painful listening to someone like that for two and a half hours. But with no microphone, uh, not only was it painful for them, but I really shredded my voice, I mean, completely. The problem was the next day I was speaking at a graduation of the Assembly of God Bible College in Addis with hundreds of graduates and thousands of people. You know, there must have been a thousand people there, families and friends. And I'm sitting, I'm sitting there. I'm the graduation commencement speaker. I'm sitting on the front row waiting for my time to get up. I don't have a voice except, it is so good to have you here. And I'm sitting there, and I'm going, Jesus, this is so embarrassing. And this is so limiting. I mean, here I am. Please heal me. And two years ago, my youngest sister was preaching in Africa. She said, I arrived in Africa, and I had laryngitis. And she said, I was wondering what on earth I was going. It came right down to the introduce me as a preacher. I came up, and she said, as soon as I started speaking, my voice was completely healed. I had a feeling this wasn't going to happen to me, though. <laughs> and I was sitting there just anxious. At least I had an interpreter with a mic who had a good voice. But I got up there, and just before I got up there, I felt overwhelmed. I felt like the Spirit of God said, Jim, it's not your voice they need to hear. It's my voice. It's my voice. That became like a life paradigm for me. You know, it's not my strength people need. It's God's. It's an encounter with the living God. It's not my leadership ability people need, although it has a place. But they need an encounter with Jesus. I mean, if we're not encountering the life-giving power of God, I quit and let's lock the doors. Unless God's doing something, I'm not responsible. This is beyond what I could possibly do. I felt like the Lord Jesus said to me, it's not, my, it's not your voice I want them to hear, it's my voice. And I literally croaked my way hoarsely through an entire commencement uh, address. And I said, okay, God, I really hope they heard your voice through all that. Through all that. But what he was doing, he was taking the frustration with my situation and turning it to faith in what God can do. This is what sufficient grace always does. It replaces our weakness with his sufficiency. We just actually grow in faith, even though we can't figure things out. And it transforms brokenness into breakthrough. This is what sufficiency, faith, grace is all about. It makes us actually in our brokenness. And we're all broken. We're all a mess in some ways, but it doesn't threaten the sufficient grace of God. And it's like Jesus. Remember when, it's kind of, to me, an illustration of this principle. Remember Jesus, when he was feeding the 5,000, he took the bread. He did three things with it. First of all, he blessed it. I love that. He just, just a little bit of bread and a little bit of fish to feed 5,000. He's going to do a miracle. And he blesses it. He takes the food in his hand and blesses it. And then what does he do next? He breaks it. And then... That's when the supernatural multiplication happens. Then he multiplies it. And it wasn't in the blessing that it was multiplied. It was in the breaking that he was multi it was multiplied. And I go, Jesus, I, I would, Lord, I would really love to go just straight from blessing to multiplication. That would be awesome. Straight from you blessing me to you using me powerfully. But Jesus usually takes a different journey with us. I know brokenness 
preaching on brokenness doesn't exactly pack out auditoriums. It's probably not what we, it's not our felt need to come to church for. But brokenness, learning the journey of brokenness, the way of the cross, will, will put you in a whole new dimension as a Christian. You'll not be living out of your own energy and your own gritting and your own, your own power. But it, it takes you to the place where you're weak and he is strong. And it's like, I, I know I've quoted him several times to you, Miles Sanford in his book, Principles of Spiritual, of Spiritual Growth. He, he, he named spiritual heroes in that book, uh, just a long list of spiritual heroes uh, from the last 300 years. And then he ends by saying, on average, it took 15 years for those spiritual heroes to go from them working for Christ to Christ working through them. And that's the journey God's got every one of us on. And it means we're going to have to walk through brokenness. It means we're going to have to come to the end of ourselves so we can find the beginning of him in a new dimension, in a supernatural dimension in our lives. It's still what? Your inadequacies, your, your weaknesses don't threaten you anymore. They just give you... In fact, what does Paul say? I'm going to boast about all of this stuff. Because God has a way of turning your brokenness into breakthroughs, not only in your life, but breakthroughs in the lives of people all around you as he uses you. Brokenness is the pathway. It starts with blessing. It goes to brokenness. And it ends with multiplication. That's why thorny grace becomes truly amazing grace in the end. And this sufficient grace also turns our tormentors into our teachers. Our tormentors into our teachers. There was a young man uh, years ago who, who realized he had both a love for and aptitude for gymnastics and it became his lifelong goal to eventually compete in the Olympics. And sure enough, he became really good to the point that he started, he started uh, winning national titles in the Olympics. I, I mean, in, in just national titles in gymnastics. And he got to just before the Olympic tryouts where he may qualify for the Olympic team, his lifelong goal. And he was on the horizontal bars and he accidentally fell and broke his neck. And that was the end of his gymnastics career and, of course, of his Olympic dreams. And he, just, and he loved the Lord, and you just don't know why this happened. His name is Timothy Dalrymple. Today, he's the president and CEO of Christianity Today. God's multiplying his life. But he writes this in his book, The Olympics Are About Failure. He said, I've asked numerous Olympic athletes about their experiences. And one thing they agree on was that it was never really about the Olympic Games themselves. It was about the people they became in striving for excellence. It was in large measure about what failure made them. And then, and then this amazing statement. Victory, when it came at all, was treacherous. Made them ease up and let up. It threatened to unmake what failure had made. Victory is more treacherous for the soul and defeat more instructive. So he says, in retrospect, I can see it. Failure, the failures I endured all along the way, as well as the failure to make the Olympic team due to injury, that has shaped me so profoundly that I hardly know who I would be apart from it. It showed me the end of myself. It taught me compassion. It showed me my many sins and flaws. And it showed me my need for a strength 
beyond my own. In short, it illuminated the what? The grace of God. It illuminated the grace of God. So Paul says in verse 10, that is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, and in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This is absolutely counterintuitive. This is the way we begin to live in a whole new direction. Now, probably we hardly know what to do with people like this. So you meet the Apostle Paul in, in the lobby after church and say, Paul, how are you doing? And he said, oh, I'm just rejoicing today that I'm so weak. I praise God that these persecutors have hurt my feelings so badly. I just rejoice in that. And, and you know, I had some people really insult me this week. Praise God. He said, I rejoice. I take delight in weaknesses and insults and hardships and persecutions and in difficulties. Normally, we lock people like that up. But Paul said, I delight. I've gotten over me. I don't need. You know, God's power is different than, 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 God's power is different than emotional energy. It's different than physical energy. It's different than intellectual firepower. God's power can work through the greatest of our limitations. Our faith is in God. We may be frustrated by the thorns. We may be, feel broken in our lives. We may just feel tormented. But sufficient grace turns it into faith and turns it into breakthrough and turns it into things that instruct and teach us and shape us like nothing else could. Our victories cause us to coast, but, but the difficulties, the weaknesses cause us to trust. We don't want to coast. We want to trust. We want to trust the living God. And I'm just praying this morning that, that maybe there's pain you just haven't known what to do with in your life. Maybe you're just, just fighting yourself. You're not even letting God use you because you feel so inadequate. And God's saying, you're, you're in a good place because I'm about to show up if you're feeling weak and inadequate. That's where I love to come because I do my best work there. I just pray God will take our pain and bring it into perspective. And it's always good to pray in faith. God wants to heal some of your pain. He wants to heal your bodies. But if he doesn't, he's keeping you where you need to trust and keep trusting. Where you need to taste every day of not just saving grace, but sustaining grace. He can sustain you. He'll keep you through the rest of the day. He'll go. He'll keep you tomorrow. Sustaining grace, no matter where you are or what you're doing. Thank God. That is why for Christ's sake, he said, for the sake of what Jesus wants to do through my life in the world, for the sake of the global footprint that God wants me to leave, for the sake of the global footprint that God wants us to leave, how we actually delight in weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, difficulties, because we know this one thing, our weakness doesn't limit him. Hallelujah. Will you stand with me, please?